Thanks for all being here, and thanks especially to the folks on our panel, Mark Skousen, Steve Forbes, and George Gilder. Really pleased that you're here. The, uh, for the last, there's been a lot of talk about um, that over the last generation, maybe the last 40 years, really highlights the challenges of measuring economic values. Been a lot of people take the view that there hasn't been much progress, much growth in incomes, economic stagnation over that period of time. And I often try to put the lie to that assertion by asking people to whether they're low income, middle income, high income, raise your hand if you want to go back to 1975. And there usually aren't a lot of takers. But one thing is undeniable, over the last 10 or 15 years, we truly have been living through a period of economic stagnation. And uh, I'm Peter Gettler. I joined the Cato Institute a year ago as president. And over that time, uh, Brink Lindsay in particular has done a lot of work trying to explore the reasons for this growth slowdown. He's published two books. I have them as books. They're e-books. One is Understanding the Growth Slowdown, and another is Reviving Economic Growth. For the first time in my life, we've had a 10-year period during which real GDP growth has not reached 3% in any single year. And at the time I joined Cato 13 months ago, I was actually hopeful because during the periods of my lifetime where we've lived through a time of economic stagnation or sharp economic contraction, it's created a lot of pressure, tension, and anxiety that often has uh, been the impetus for positive change in, on the policy front. And I think over the last few months, I've realized that I was correct in expecting that economic anxiety would uh, create some, some turmoil and, some, and stimulate some change. I was wrong because it's not the kind of change that I had anticipated, clearly. We're really lucky to have three gentlemen here today that uh, I don't think really need much of an introduction, but I'll try to provide one. Between them, I think they've probably written more books than I've ever read. <laughs> but I think it's a great opportunity for each of them to comment on you know, their views on how we're going to revive economic growth in the United States and thereby continue the course of progress and prosperity that our nation has enjoyed for, uh, for such a long period of time. And they each have books that have been released recently um, that actually speak to this. I spoke with a donor to Cato recently, and he has a, a son who will be starting college in the fall. And he told me that he was considering attending Cato University in this, this summer so that his son could be inoculated against what he was likely to learn from the economics professors in college before he attended. When I was getting ready for college, I didn't need such inoculation. But uh, in the senior year of uh, my high school days, uh, George Gilder's book, Wealth and Poverty, was, uh, was released. And during the summer between high school and college, I read it. And it gave me no shortage of ammo to use against uh, the Marxist professors I encountered when I attended school, including in such classes as capitalism and its critics. 
I think things have changed. Some things haven't changed. I think the uh, philosophical makeup of the faculty at most universities is about the same as it was at that time. But uh, I, I felt that in my classes, we were able to, to uh, engage in lively debate and disagree without fearing, as many students do today, that it can hurt their grades and their transcript and that disagreement is, uh, is not, not permitted. So I actually thank you, George, for uh, providing me so much ammo to use against uh, fraternity brothers, professors, and others with whom I, I didn't agree, uh, who didn't agree with me in the case for enterprise and free markets. A lot We're, of the ammo started at Cato. Thanks so much for that. Um, thanks so much for that. George's book is uh, The Scandal of Money, and we're delighted. I think one of the ideas that Cato has uh, promoted for a long time is the fact that our fiat money system and the power of the Federal Reserve is a great threat not only to our economic well-being, but to our freedom. And that's one of the reasons that for 34 years, Cato has held a prominent annual uh, monetary conference that's coordinated by our Vice President, Jim Dorn and that we started under the direction of George Seligen, our Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, to, uh, to highlight, highlight these risks and to uh, promote free market alternatives to our current system. So George's book is very important and timely. In addition, Steve's last book, I believe, was a similar topic, highlighting the threat um, that uh, the lack of sound money uh, poses to, to our country. So those are both uh, tremendous contributions to the popular literature. I told Steve earlier that uh, for most of my life I've not been affiliated with either major party, but that in late 1995 I registered Republican so that in the 1996 Connecticut primary I could cast my first primary vote for Steve Forbes for president. Steve replied that he wishes a lot more people uh, registered <laughs> and, and voted for him. But even in defeat, he made great contributions to the, to the debate and the case for freedom, enterprise, sound money, and a flat tax. And uh, he's still at work. His book that he wrote with Elizabeth Ames, Reviving America, How Repealing Obamacare, Replacing the Tax Code, and Reforming the Fed Will Restore Hope and Prosperity. And uh, I think he does a fantastic job really prioritizing three key areas, um, particularly areas such as healthcare uh, and money, where many of the problems are actually created by government intervention. And for some reason, the prescription that many people su suggest is more government intervention. Finally, Mark Skousen, who uh, we all know as uh, an economist, an economics professor, an author, but uh, many also know as the uh, impresario of Freedom Fest, which he uh, accurately calls the world's largest gathering of free minds, which takes place in Las Vegas uh, every summer. We're delighted to have, have Mark here. I mentioned at the outset that uh, um, while we can agree that there's been uh, income and economic stagnation of late, um, the measurement problems w w reflected in our uh, economic aggregates, um, I think, do fool us because there are many things that aren't captured in, uh, in GDP. And I, again, reject the assertion that, uh, that uh, Americans really at any income level have experienced stagnation in their well-being and their lives in the last 40 years. Mark has uh, proposed, and he 
now has an updated version released last year of his book, The Structure of Production, an alternative to uh, gross domestic product as a measure of, uh, of our economy, and has proposed a, uh, an alternative called gross output. I'm going to let Mark explain it because one of the uh, reasons, rationale he gives for, for uh, um, it being a, uh, an improved uh, and accepted version of the measure of the economy's performance is that it's now published quarterly by the government along with the GDP figures, which is quite an achievement by Mark. But I remind him that as libertarians, we don't necessarily take government action as, a, as, a, as a, an endorsement. Um, so I'm looking forward to, uh, to his remarks, explaining some of the work he's done in developing and promoting um, more effective measures of economic performance. And we will proceed with the speakers in the uh, reverse order by which I, I introduce them. So please join me in offering a warm welcome to Cato to Mark Skousen. Peter, your comments about uh, slow economic growth and the fact that we haven't experienced 3% growth in some times reminds me of this, this program that uh, George W. Bush set up called the 4% Growth Plan. And uh, when I talked to the organizer of it, I said, 4% Growth Plan, now did he mean growth of the economy or growth of government? Um, so she didn't appreciate that, uh, that comment. But... Uh, Unfortunately, under George W. Bush, the economy never did, using standard GDP statistics, never did grow more than, or never did grow 4% during the entire period of full employment. So it's kind of unfortunate. Um, what, what I'd like to talk today is uh, what Peter mentioned, gross output. I think it's a very important statistic. And in fact, uh, my main thesis is that gross output, or GO as we call it, offers a better, more comprehensive picture of the economy, is a powerful unifying force between accounting, finance, and economics. It links micro with macro, and it appeals to all the major schools of economics. In many ways, GO is the missing piece of the what the latest economist calls the prosperity puzzle, which was their latest issue, and it's interesting, they talk a lot in there about the problems with GDP, which I'm sure will come up in this discussion. But in any case, uh, my argument uh, that this is a unifying uh, uh, approach, that it's a more comprehensive picture of the economy, it's a tall order, and so uh, I'd like to get started. I, I actually see it as a paradigm shift in the way we treat macroeconomics. Um, so we start off with basics, what is GDP, what is it supposed to measure, annual spending is one way of looking at it in the economy, consumers, government, and business, C plus I plus G is the way they normally talk about it in classes, and um, there's a problem with GDP, there's a lot of problems with GDP, but the one I want to focus in particular is According to GDP statistics, what drives the economy? And so what we find out that when you break down GDP in C plus I plus G, you see that it breaks into consumer spending as the biggest sector of the economy, government spending second, and business spending a poor third. 
And what does that say in terms of policy implications, you see? That's the issue. And of course, because consumer spending represents such two-thirds, basically, of GDP, you get the media constantly making, creating a myth. It's a, one of the most common myths in economics. And this is an example of it from the Wall Street Journal. You get it from all the publications. Household spending generates more than two-thirds of total economic output, says the Wall Street Journal. So steady spending gains, that is consumer spending gains, should translate into economic growth. If only consumers would spend more, that's all it takes. And of course, you have the New York Times. Consumer spending makes up more than 70% of the economy, and it usually drives growth during economic recoveries. And finally, another one from the Wall Street Journal. Consumers are the engine of the U.S. economy. Consumers, not producers, not entrepreneurs. Consumers, accounting for about 70% of the economy. So you can see the problem that's inherent with using GDP as a statistic. Is this, are we coming to an accurate conclusion, is our question. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is missing from GDP? Well, again, GDP is C plus I plus G. It was $18.6 trillion economy. Is that the economy? So we break it down into consumption, 67%, $12.4 trillion. Investment, $3 trillion, and government, $3.2 trillion. So what is missing in GDP? This is the surprise factor, the supply chain. GDP does not measure the supply chain. It does not measure all the business spending, the B2B spending, to bring the products to their final use. You see, GDP just measures the value of finished goods and services. Your clothes, your shoes, the, the, the internet, uh, all of everything that we're enjoying right now, this cup of water, that's all counted in GDP. But the spending by business to get you to the finished products is left out. And that is its Achilles heel in many ways. And look at the size of that supply chain, which I've been measuring, and now the government is measuring, the BEA, Bureau of Economic Analysis, $20.3 trillion. It's more than consumer spending, which is 12.4. It's more than government spending. It's more than fixed See, the I part is fixed investment. Um, now, what is gross output? Well, it can be, for those of you who are economists and you're familiar with the Irving Fisher's equation of exchange, it measures total transactions. It's also a measure of Hayek's triangles. And uh, so this is taken from uh, Prices and Production, this great book that uh, Friedrich Hayek wrote in 1931 when he was lecturing at, at uh, the London uh, School of Economics. And th there is a picture of the triangle that he used. Now, it was purely theoretical. He has no breakdown. He has no statistics backing it. It was pure theory. And it has had a rough road of acceptance. Uh, but what I'm suggesting is that Hayek's triangle is being measured today now by the government, and this is a fantastic breakthrough. And I am pleased that this program here today is taking place in the Hayek Auditorium. 
So appropriate considering the fact that the government's now measuring Hayek's triangle. So we all know the background of Friedrich Hayek. I just thought I would post this up here. And particularly, he's known more for the, his book, The Road to Serfdom and the Constitution of Liberty, but he is also author of this macroeconomic work, which formed the foundation of my own work in the structure of production called Prices and Production, published in 1931. I have a first edition signed by, uh, by Friedrich Hayek. Today, uh, I've come out, or Laissez-Faire Books has published a, uh, his two essays on the business cycle called Hayek's Triangles, and they asked me to write the introduction. But here's a modern-day version of Hayek's Triangle, where it shows the four stages of production, resources, production, distribution, and final output. So you can see GDP is in there, but then so are the stages, the supply chain prior to that, uh, where we have stages one, two, and three. So this is a great way for students to capture what Hayek's triangle, triangle and what I call the four stage, universal four-stage model of the economy. Every good and service that you and I use has gone through the resource stage, the production stage, the distribution or wholesale and retail stage, and then to final use, which is represented number four by GDP. Well, the big news is in April 2014, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which puts out GDP statistics, has now started to measure, create gross output, a measure of Hayek's triangle, or total transactions under Irving Fisher, depending on how you want to look at that. And we have Steve Landfeld, who is the pioneer as the director of the BEA, who said gross output provides an important new perspective on the economy and a powerful new set of tools of analysis, one that is closer to the way many businesses see themselves. And isn't that true? Business sees themselves as producing, moving the product along the production process. And that's what gross output uh, is measuring. So what's really interesting, a lot of people haven't noticed this, but whenever the BEA comes out with its uh, quarterly promotion, uh, announcements, uh, release of GDP data, which they did just recently, notice how they define, how they define uh, uh, gross gr GDP. They define it in terms of gross output first, and then they subtract out intermediate production. So GDP plus intermediate uh, inputs equals gross output. Or another way, the way they define it, GDP is gross output minus uh, uh, intermediate inputs. So basically what they're doing is getting you, the audience, the consumer of uh, GDP statistics to get used to the idea of a what I call a top line of national income accounting and a bottom line. The BEA also, for those of us who are Austrians who believe in disaggregating the economy and looking at industry by industry, sector by sector, uh, I'm delighted that the BEA has also introduced gross output by industry, which allows economists to disaggregate the economy and uh, based on stages of production. So based on this announcement, uh, I, was, uh, I wrote a uh, lead editorial uh, commentary uh, in, in April 2014 on the Wall Street Journal 
at last a better economic measure, and they came out with a new third edition of my structure production. Basically, my book, The Structure of Production, was, uh, had virtually disappeared. Nobody was reading it. But suddenly, when the government starts using the statistic, it has come out uh, of obscurity and now is being used uh, uh, in, in, uh, and being read. And we have copies here uh, for you to, to purchase after the presentation. Well, what, what can we learn from the new GO statistic? You may ask yourselves, well, so what? So what that there's a new uh, statistic? Well, first of all, it, you can see that gross output from this statistic is much more volatile. It's a much better indicator of the business cycle. You can see here that gross output, especially during the recession of 2008, 2009, how it dropped precipitously. GDP declined hardly at all. In nominal terms, GDP declined 2%. Is that an accurate reflection of what happened during the Great Recession? Not at all. But you can see in terms of gross output, you can see what happened in the intermediate stages. There was a significant drop that is a better, better evidence of what, what is going on. So <clears throat> according to the new model, the new GEO model, everything is in reverse. Remember in GDP, consumer spending was number one, followed by government and business. Now suddenly business spending, when you include the supply chain, is nearly 60% of the economy. Consumer spending is now down to 32%. Instead of two-thirds, it's only a third. And government spending is 8.2%. So when you see these two models next to each other, what do you see? Essentially, what you see is that business, the business sector, is by far the most important sector in the economy. And policy that Steve Forbes is talking about in his book and what George Gilder is talking about in his book focus on the business sector, the supply chain, innovation, entrepreneurship, productivity. These are the factors. And now we have a model that is consistent with economic growth theory. Um, it's also a support says law, as Steve Hankey says, with GO, GDP's monopoly will be broken as the US government will provide official data on the supply side of the economy and its structure. So we as supply siders, Austrians, we have our own statistic. Now I know a lot of you don't like aggregates, but aggregates can tell you a lot. And I love this quote by Larry Kudlow though not one in a thousand recognizes it. It is business, not consumers, that is the heart of the economy. When businesses produce profitably, they create income-producing jobs and then consumers spend. Profitable firms also purchase new equipment because they need to modernize and update all their tools, structures, and software. So this is a new approach. I call it, and I'm not saying replace GDP, I'm saying it's complementary. Gross output, you know how in a financial statement you have top line and bottom line. Those of us in accounting, my students, my business students love this. So we have top line and bottom line. Top line is sales and revenue, bottom line is earnings. Now, finally, economists have caught up, after 100 years behind the times, have caught up with the accounting and finance uh, professions. Now we have a top line, we have a bottom line. Our top line is gross output, revenue and sales. Our bottom line is GDP value added, similar to gross profit, 
in financial statements. And this is a quote here from uh, uh, three great economists, uh, including uh, uh, Stephen Landefeld, the BEA director, former BEA director, and Bill Nordhaus, who is uh, uh, from Yale University, and Dale Jorgensen at Harvard, who say gross output is the natural measure of the production sector, while net output, GDP, is appropriate as a measure of welfare. Both are required in a complete systems of accounts. So here's a general model of the economy uh, where you see the production side, the make economy, reaching final use, GDP, and then consumption when it's used up. And so this is, uh, again, in my textbooks, uh, a general model of the economy. I don't have time to go into that because uh, I've run out of time. But if you're interested, by the way, in, uh, in my PowerPoint, because I've gone through pretty quickly, uh, maybe we can send it to the attendees or they can give me a card or whatever. I'd be glad to, to send you this PowerPoint to give you my, my basic points. GO is being integrated in the textbooks. This is the sign of success. So it's not just in my textbook, which I have economic logic, but it's also in McConnell Brew, the number one textbook in the country, although Greg Mankiw disputes that. Um, and we have it in, uh, in uh, John Taylor's textbook and, uh, and, the, and Roger Leroy Miller so, uh, and, and uh, David Colander. So it's, uh, it's in all of the textbooks. It's developing to be in, in all of the textbooks. Well, I have a few quotes here, what others are saying about it. Steve Forbes has been very supportive in Forbes magazine, feeling that this is a great leap forward in national income accounting. And George Gilder has suggested that vital learning accumulates through all the processes of production measured in gross output. So I don't have time to read any of the other quotes, but we have academic economists, uh, we have uh, business economists, and so forth, recognizing the value of the structure of production. So my basic conclusion is simply the structure of production does matter. Thank you very much. We're going to wait for questions until the end. Although I will say, Mark, since you pointed out that the government uh, now publishing GO stimulated sales of books, I'm assuming that didn't have anything to do with your desire for them to publish it. Otherwise, that would be, we'd probably count that as rent seeking. I think supply, it says law, supply creates demand. That's what I. <laughs> Mark, thanks so much. Um, please join me in giving a warm welcome to C. Forbes. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, uh, Cato. Congratulations, Mark, on measuring the whole economy instead of uh, just part of the economy. Uh, but no matter how you measure the economy, there's no getting around it. Today, it sucks. It, it, it just seems stuck in second gear. You get one good report followed by a disappointing report. Uh, profits aren't what they should be. Business investment's not what it should be. New business formations are not what they should be. The economy is in a rut. And there's a lot of talk these days about the new normal, that we must accept this uh, below average uh, situation. Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, former Harvard uh, President, who knows what he'll be if the Democrats get in again, talks about secular stagnation as if some alien forces come along and uh, there's nothing we human beings can do about it. 
It's all nonsense. The rut that we're in today, which is having profound implications around the world, uh, bad economies lead to bad politics. We see that everywhere around the world. It comes from mistakes. And the nice thing about policy errors is they can be corrected. Those errors can be corrected. And that's why we wrote the book, Reviving America. We focus on three big reforms. Obviously, there are a lot of other things that have to be done, but you have to have priorities. So we prioritized on health care, on a new tax code, and getting our monetary system back on track for the first time in almost half a century. Health care is an obvious one, makes up almost 20% of the economy, but also it's the most personal thing possible. Much more than taxes and the like, health care for us, for our families, our friends, our loved ones. So this leads to the question, why do we have a crisis in health care? It's not the quality of health care in this country. Overall, it's the best in the world. You can see it in cancer survival rates. Western Europe has many fine medical institutions, but in terms of survival rates, that is five years. I had it several years ago. In terms of five years, you do much better in this country than you do anywhere else in the world. Some say it's because there's too much demand. People like me are getting older. We want more health care services. Therefore, the prices keep going up and the system goes kablooey. But just step back for a minute and ask yourselves, why is demand for health care considered a crisis, whereas demand for anything else in this economy is considered a great opportunity? Uh, people want more enlightenment. Cato will be glad to help out. Is that good, Peter? A little sucking up? Yeah, good. <laughs> Trying to make sure I get my free lunch after this. And, 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 and in terms of apps, you want more apps? Riders glad to help you out. You want more cars? Detroit and other manufacturers glad to come to your assistance. So why is demand for health care considered a disaster as demand for anything else in this economy is considered a great opportunity? The answer is we don't have real free markets in health care. It's all third party dominated. The real customers are government, insurance companies, and employers. The patient is at the end of the line. Proof of it is, because we've grown up with this system, we don't realize how peculiar it is, you go to a clinic or hospital and you ask in advance what the treatment's going to cost, get a very strange look. It means one of two things. Either you're uninsured or you're a lunatic. Why would you want to know the price? What's it to you? Don't worry about it. Insurance will cover it. Then we'll tell you how much you owe at the end of the thing. But just be passive about it. The proof of it is, Another proof of it is the crummiest motel in America wouldn't dare put you in a room with another guest, a sick guest with a curtain in between, as they routinely do in a hospital. Robes. You go to a hospital. They look like they, the robes they give you uh, come, look like they came from a Salvation Army dump, you know, a dumpster, that the, these things that humiliate you can't get around. I mean, and, 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 you, and you see it, and, and so the problems when you have this top-down system, third-party payer system, almost Soviet-style system, is they always try to cure the problems with more regulations. But it's like whack-a-mole. One problem comes up, you whack it, ten other problems come up, whack, 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 which is why doctors and hospitals spend more time filling out forms than practicing medicine. Why we're having a doctor shortage. No one is happy with the system we have today. Medical costs are still going up. You go to a hospital, now that's bad enough, but people, it's a very unsatisfying experience. 
You wonder, do the hospitalists, as they call them, talk to each other? Do the specialists talk to each other? You tell them Antilly can't have this kind of medication. They give it to her anyway. Uh, it's an unsatisfying experience. Uh, deductibles under the so-called Obama health care exchanges. Yes, you may get the insurance, but the health care becomes more unaffordable than ever because you have $500,000 deductibles. Not quite that bad, but it's become out, out of reach. And so normally in a free market, best practices are quickly imitated. You know, iPad, iPhone comes along, Samsung and others say, oh, we've got a better device, a more improved device. You don't get that kind of thing in hospital. I'll just give you one quick example. Breast cancer. You're supposed to have mammograms to discover breast cancer. Well, it turns out if a woman has dense breast tissue, and half the women do, the mammogram and the so-called improvements on it don't discover it. They only discover it one-fourth of the time. There's a new practice out there, new new treatment called molecular breast imaging, where they put a tracer in, and it will find breast cancer in women. That's why many times a woman has a mammogram, says, oh, you're, you're great. Then a month later, they find out they have a tumor the size of a baseball. Why, why didn't they find it? Because now you'd think that something like uh, the, this new way of discovering breast cancer, molecular breast imaging, MBI, which Mayo and a handful of others have been pushing, would be quickly imitated and saying, this is the way to go. No. So if you have a mammogram, ladies, insist on MBI, because otherwise you may miss it. So the key thing is in healthcare, the key thing is, and we outline it in the book, is getting the patient in control again for the first time ever. As you know, the system came about because of World War II, wage and price controls. They couldn't pay people because of labor shortages, because everyone was going in the armed services, young people. So they had to pay people in kind. Government said you could do it with benefits rather than cash. Then after the war in the 50s, the IRS made a tax ruling that embedded the thing. So we have this crazy system today. And so the thing about free markets, as you know, always turns scarcity into abundance. We see it in what we used to call cell phones. You know the first one from Motorola 30 years ago, big as a brick, uh, weighed like a brick, big as a shoebox, a 40-minute battery life, first one $3,995. Now there are billions of them around the world. They almost give them away depending on the plan you have. Smartphone, $100, about to go down to $50. Scarcity into abundance, how do we get that in healthcare? We outlined some of the basic reforms. One would be nationwide shopping for health insurance instead of having all these state cartels, have hundreds of companies compete for your business, equalize tax treatment. If a self-employed and businesses get a tax deduction, why shouldn't uh, uh, patients and individuals have it or have equalize it? How about transparency? How about having hospitals post prices and clinics post prices for all their services? So one, one charges $2,000 for an MRI, another one $350. Have transparency. How about requiring transparency on how many patients die from infections received after they're admitted to a hospital? It's a national scandal. No restaurant could get away with that. Chipotle didn't kill anyone, thankfully, but uh, the stock and company took a huge hit. But yet thousands of patients die unnecessarily in our hospitals. How about readmission rates? How about choice of insurance? I don't need pregnancy services, thank you very much, but I'm forced to buy them, absolutely crazy. And do away with the individual mandates, do away with the uh, employer mandates. And safety nets, you can have more effective safety nets, such as high-risk pools, we have it in food. Put aside how food stamps are administered, but no one needs starve in this country. You have uh, food stamps, you have food banks, government doesn't run agriculture, it's already involved too much in agriculture. 
but it thankfully doesn't run it. If the government ran agriculture, we'd have no more obesity. We'd all be starving. That's what happened unless you work for the government. But that's, that, that, that's what happened in Russia and China. So you can have a real entrepreneurship, effective safety nets in health care. Taxes, you all know. This is the second big reform, price and a burden. It's not just raising revenue. We're overtaxed, and the biggest abomination is the federal income tax code. You know, the litany, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, which defined the character of the American nation, all of 272 words. Constitution, amendments, a little over 7,000 words. The Bible took centuries to put that together, 773,000 words. Federal income tax code and all the attendant rules and regulations, over 10 million words and rising Nobody knows what's in it. As you know, you call the IRS hotline if they deign to answer it. Fourth or third time, they give you the wrong answer. Money Magazine, several years ago, did a survey, gave a hypothetical family's finances, numbers to 46 different tax preparers, people considered expert in the field, got back. You know what they got back? 46 different returns, 46 different estimates of the family's tax liability, thousands of dollars of difference. So the answer is, the answer is, we got to junk this thing. It is beyond repair. And I, I don't. I, I used to say we should bury the thing, but I'm not sure the EPA would allow it to be buried now. It's so toxic. <laughs> but and 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 replace it and replace it with a simple flat tax. Just throw the whole thing out. Have a single rate, generous exemptions for adults and for children. And the plan we outline in the book: first 50 of your family of four, your first $52,800 of a of a salary. Free of federal income tax, only 17% above that. No tax on savings, no death taxes. You should be allowed to leave the world unmolested by the IRS. Do the same thing on the business side. Reduce the rate from 35 to 17. Have incident expensing of capital expenditures. And just do it. Now, people say, oh, why not just uh, throw them a bone and have two tax rates or three tax rates, as some of the Republicans propose. No, you don't. We should have learned from 1986 when we had a little bit of simplification, got it down to two rates, 28%, 15%. Ladies and gentlemen, when you put two tax rates together, it's like putting two rabbits together. They breed. They multiply. And, 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 and you saw what happened with that. So let's just go to a single rate. And, this is, and 40 countries have done this and jurisdictions have done this. And, that, and, and, and the, real, the real thing is uh, this is a moral thing. Think of the opportunity costs. The IRS estimates we spend $6 billion hours a year filling out tax forms. Experts estimate we spend two to three hundred billion dollars a year conforming with this monstrosity. Just go back 20 years, add up all the tens of billions of hours, trillions of dollars, all the immense brain power in this useless, corrupting, complex activity. And think if that had gone to new products, new services, new medical devices, new cures for diseases, how much better and richer our lives would be instead of a source of corruption that brings out the worst in everything. The third big reform is not the most exciting thing, monetary policy. It's not 50 shades of gray. It's not like going naked in the jungle. It's, it's not, 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 a, not the most exciting thing in the world, but it's absolutely crucial. Why is it crucial? Because this is how we make progress in the world, transacting with each other, interacting with each other, buying and selling with each other. We do it billions of times a day. Money makes that interaction easier, the progress easier to achieve, uh, rather than trying to do barter. Money, think of money like you would a claim check. You know, you go to a restaurant during the winter, you check your coat, you get, you get a token, piece of paper, a piece of plastic in and of itself. It is worthless, but it's a claim on a real product. Money's a claim on products and services. And it works because it's based on trust. So money measures value. The way clocks measure time, scales measure weight, rulers measure space. And so the thing is, it works best when it has a fixed value. 
Think of it, imagine the Federal Reserve was in charge of the Time Bureau and they decided to float the clock. Say so 60 minutes an hour one day, 48 minutes the next, 96 minutes the day after, you know life would be chaotic. Imagine if you go to the supermarket and want to buy a pound of cheese, the pound of changes each day. You buy a gallon of gasoline, you assume the amount of the gallon is not changing each day. So imagine baking a cake under this new regime. It says bake the batter 30 minutes. You have to figure out are those nominal minutes, inflation-adjusted minutes. Are they a DC minute, a New York minute, a Mexican minute? Be chaotic, but that's what they do. Investing is risky enough, but if you don't know what you're going to get back, $100, cent dollar, $0.80, cent dollar, dollar, $10, dollar, it hurts investment, which is a key to future prosperity. And so the, the fact the dollar may be going up or down is like a clock that, or a watch that's either too fast or too slow. Neither one's going to help you very much. The Federal Reserve today, and we outline in this book, is acting like the Soviet Union. It thinks it can control the economy by trying to control interest rates and trying to control money. It has been, as Donald Trump would say, a disaster. Take zero interest rates. Take zero interest rates. That is price controls. You know better than anyone else what rent control can do and what price controls to do to deform a market. They've done it to the credit markets. They made it very easy for government to borrow, very cheap for big companies to borrow, but small and new businesses and households. Let me just give you one statistic. In the past five years between 20, 2009 and 2014, credit to government grew 37%, credit to corporations 32%, credit to small businesses and households 6%. Absolutely pathetic. On the environment we have today, especially with hyperbank regulation, very difficult, very difficult for small businesses to get reliable lines of credit, which is why Apple, 200 billion cash, goes out and borrows tens of billions in the bond market. Why? Because they can. It's cheap, so they buy in the stock. Great for Apple shareholders, but not very good use of capital. Exxon just originally borrowed $12 billion to buy in stock and pay dividends. Not the best use of capital. Ultimately, we have to go to a gold standard. Why? Because gold keeps its intrinsic value better than anything else. We did it for 180 years. When you see the price fluctuate, that's the dollar fluctuating, not the intrinsic value of gold. Gold's like a ruler, like 12 inches in a foot or 60 minutes an hour. Fix it to have a fixed value, like 16 ounces in a pound. You'll see this economy start to really prosper. In the meantime, since that's going to take a lot of intellectual work to get that done, even though we did it for 180 years, in the meantime, let's have real interest rates in the market again, instead of these mandarins and bureaucrats setting interest rates. Let the price be set by people, free borrowers, free lenders set that price, and reduce the Federal Reserve's obscene portfolio, nearly $4 trillion, which they seize from the economy, seize those assets, return that, let that flow off as these bonds mature into the financial system and have free people determine where the capital goes and creating future uh, prosperity for all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Steve, I've heard you say many times that monetary policy is crucial. And uh, I've also heard you say that when people start discussing the topic, that's usually a signal for folks to either go to sleep or leave the group. Um, and, you know, your exposition with, you know, good humor, common sense is really, uh, really great. And I think, uh, I think it helps a lot of people get the message. Uh, George, please uh, join me in offering a warm welcome to uh, George Gilder. Well, thank you. Uh, it's great to be in the Hayek Auditorium. Uh, my, the quote at the beginning of the scandal of money is, 
from Hayek, and uh, it says, the root and source of all monetary evil is the government monopoly and control of money. And uh, this is the heart of the message that Steve just gave, and it's the heart of uh, the message of the scandal of money. And but Mark Skousen's redefinition of economic statistics goes deeper than even he has fully explained, I think, because his key thesis is that goods and services are not final products. The final product is the human being and his creativity and the image of his creator. Those are the final products. And they are measured through information theory as knowledge. Wealth is knowledge. Uh, uh, Professor at MIT recently summed it up better than I did, I think. He said that when an expensive car, that's Cesar Hidalgo is his name, and uh, he said when an expensive car crashes into a wall, all its value disappears, even though every atom and molecule remains. Value is information. That's another Hayek point. The car is knowledge. And I say all wealth is essentially knowledge. As Thomas Sowell put it, the Neanderthal in his cave had all the material resources we have today. The difference between our age and the Stone Age is entirely the increase of knowledge. But this gives us a further insight, because if wealth is knowledge, what is growth? I've been studying uh, uh, business progress for years through uh, the leading consultants in Boston. I've, I spent a lot of time with Bain and Company, and they have documented learning curves all across the economy from everything from uh, uh, eggs to insurance policies, transistors to software code. And the learning curve ordains that with every doubling of total units, there's approximately a 20 to 30% um, reduction in cost. So learning curves are ubiquitous across the economy, and so Knowledge, wealth is knowledge, growth is learning. That's what it is. And uh, this is the real, these are the real final products. They're knowledge and learning. And uh, knowledge and learning does not happen only in the consumption of a hamburger. Uh, the consumption of the hamburger, the consumption of housing, the consumption of transportation, clothing, whatever it is, all endows human beings with the capability to create, to learn, to expand knowledge, to expand wealth. So this is, the, this is what GEO represents. GEO represents all that learning at every step 
in the process. It's not restricted to the final output. It uh, proceeds through the entire economy of learning and knowledge. But if uh, learning is uh, growth and uh, growth is learning and knowledge is wealth, what is money? And uh, this has been uh, uh, quite an enigma for me for a long time. And I've been uh, somewhat distracted by various commodity theories of money that believe that somehow money is really, uh, the value of money stems from its value as jewelry. You know, gold is valuable because it's really jewelry. Thus, money is valuable because it's really jewelry. Well, my friend Richard Vigilante said, no, jewelry is valuable because it's really money. And why is money valuable? Money is valuable because it's time. It represents time in the economy. And when uh, you have zero interest rates, for example, uh, you essentially are zeroing out time. Everything slows down. Uh, Jim Grant uh, describes it as throwing away the clock uh, in uh, a basketball game. Now, everything slows down. Nobody scores. It's, uh, everything slows down when the value of, of when interest rates are zeroed out. Money is time. It's what forces entrepreneurs to allocate, to prioritize, to invest in one thing rather than another. Uh, without uh, interest rates, you have just everything can go forward because uh, with infinite time, everything's possible. And this is really the vision that currently governs uh, the Fed. So uh, this is why the return, as we say, to gold is uh, so critical because it, gold is really time. Uh, by happenstance throughout history, uh, the uh, uh, mining, as mining gear has advanced, as the technology for extracting gold has advanced, the gold has become uh, more widely distributed, more uh, attenuated and, and deeper. And so essentially the cost, the time to uh, extract the gold has remained reasonably constant for centuries. So gold has thus become the source of time in the economy, measured through time. And, uh, and this is really the heart of, uh, of what money is. Money is time. And, and what we really are experiencing today is a war against time uh, conducted by all the central banks of the world. And it explains the great slowdown in growth that really began with the abandonment of Bretton Woods in 1971, when every when we entered the Molaise decade and and uh, everything began to slow down because uh, the signal of which Hayek insisted upon was critical of the price signals conferred by money were debauched uh, and. Uh, 
money became, rather than a measuring stick, as Steve describes it, it became a magic wand. And all these uh, uh, magic wand for the government. And all these, uh, and you can't have real growth without knowledge and learning. And knowledge and learning depends on real information rather than on, on uh, the spurious manipulations of the Fed, who try to essentially try to fool entrepreneurs into uh, uh, making uh, imprudent decisions. So, uh, but uh, when we say going to the gold standard, we aren't necessarily speaking about going back to anything. This is going forward. Uh, the, the gold standard in conjunction with the new global economy opened up by the internet is, uh, is a uniquely powerful new element in the history of the world. Uh, the, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain transforms not just uh, the potential for global money, but also the, the potential for innovation in security. You know, the SWIFT network got cracked, got hacked. This, the SWIFT network is the central nervous system of our banking, of our banks. And it, uh, and it got hacked, $60 million extracted in Bangladesh. And the centralized model of security is bankrupt. It doesn't work any more than the centralized model of money uh, can work. And uh, the Bitcoin blockchain uh, imparts security not through uh, concealment and centralization, but through transparency and distribution. You know, you have to uh, hack half the computers in the world to take over the blockchain and change uh, the public ledger of transactions. So. We can now integrate a gold standard with a Bitcoin standard, which is explicitly based on time, and they converge. And uh, provided that uh, Dan Berninger wins his fight to stop Title II uh, domination of the internet, reduction of the internet to a pathetic public utility uh, where uh, aggregations of lawyers converge at every node and control and specify prices, which is the meaning of a Title II internet. Uh, uh, provided we preserve the global internet and allow it to prosper, I believe that uh, a, a gold standard can evolve, even if we can't go back to the Kemp, uh, Gingrich, Van Weber, gold standard, legislation that was uh, introduced in 1984, and which was the last great hope for actually enacting a connection between gold and the dollar. So uh, money is time, and uh, time is real, and Time can't be manipulated. It can't be hoarded. It can't be redistributed. It is time is what remains scarce when everything else in capitalism becomes abundant. But uh, the abundance of capitalism is contingent on the integrity of the information that governs it. 
the knowledge, the processes of knowledge and learning that underlie it and embody it. So I, I think all this introduction of the gross output model is crucial because not so much because it, it shows that consumption doesn't drive the economy, human creativity drives the economy. And uh, I think that is a tremendous insight and a tremendous advance. Thank you. Thank you, George. One of the quotes in your book, I, I have to paraphrase, but it's, uh, it's a paradox that's always puzzled uh, many of us, that, that so many who see themselves as adherents to free markets accept central planning yeah. in the monetary realm. Yeah. It's really, really incredible, and to the extent we can, can uh, convince people of, uh, of that paradox and inconsistency, I, th I think it will help our cause. I uh, want to open it up to questions. Often when I'm at presentations at Cato, the moderator says they're going to invoke the moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. I'm not going to do that out of consideration to the audience. I'd like you to have opportunity to ask questions. So those of you who do ask questions, please be as considerate of your fellow audience members and be concise. Uh, please wait to be called on and recognized. Uh, wait for the microphone so that uh, the folks up here can hear you and uh, folks listening on the internet can hear you as well. State your name and affiliation, and please uh, offer a concise question that's uh, actually in the form of a question. So why don't we start, uh, start right here in the front. Thank you. Thank you all for your co uh, comments. Uh, I want to talk about health care. My name is Lou Gagliano. I'm an advisor to the LeapFrog Group. Um, I agree with you, uh, Mr. Forbes, that transparency of prices is important. But frankly, outcomes of, uh, is, is equally important and frankly more important, in, in my view, to the care of patients and particularly hospitals. So the question I have for you and some of the things that we're seeing is that actually some of the payers, private insurance companies, are actually promoting uh, and sending patients to where the best care is given without interfering with the clinical decision of doctors, believe it or not. So the question I have for you is could you comment on the fact of, of outcomes, uh, measures being important to the decision as to where we send our patients for care. Um, I think the, the, the way that you, you phrased the question, where we send patients, uh, in a true free market, patients would quickly have the information on where uh, best care is available. Metrics would be created to give them uh, more sophisticated information on uh, particular outcomes. What's happened with breast cancer is, is a scandal. What's happened in terms of people dying in hospitals because of infections received at the hospital that are avoidable is an absolute scandal. So rather than hoping the, the insurers getting the light like they did a few years ago with electronic records, I mean, every business in the world has had electronic records. Your local dry cleaner for 20 years, <laughs> 30 years. Uh, the reason, because a third-party payer, you didn't, you didn't get in health care, and then when they did it, they did it Soviet-style, sort of one-size-fits-all, and it's been a disaster. So uh, I think the key is all the proposals we should make is how do we empower information and patients to uh, be able to make more decisions, and then providers will quickly uh, uh, adhere to it, and if they don't, uh, people won't go there. They don't have to go there. They don't have to be directed there. 
And uh, that, 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 that is truly the way to go. Instead of a top-down saying, okay, let's have outcome-oriented, markets will do outcome-oriented very, very swiftly uh, because, it, because, again, healthcare is so personal. And I'll just give you one example. I mentioned about uh, breast cancer. There's a chain in Pennsylvania called Geisinger. Uh, several years ago, they put in the equivalent of a warranty. Legally, they can't call it that. But in effect, if they botch your knee operation, the next one's on them. Whereas under the normal system we have today, uh, we go back to paying it even though it was not done right the first time. How many hospital chains have put in the equivalent of warranties? Uh, you can count them on a single hand. Whereas in a normal free market, that would be quickly imitated or you wouldn't get the customers. So let's get the patient in charge. And I think a lot of these things we find desirable, like electronic records and uh, better outcomes, would, would happen naturally as, as they do when people because it's, it's about them. <laughs> the only place warranties exist in healthcare today is that if they amputate the wrong arm, they will amputate the other for free. <laughs> <laughs> or operate on the wrong side of the brain, too, yes. So. <laughs> Sir, the gentleman in the middle there. Uh, thank you. Max Pappas, one-time Cato Institute employee, currently economic advisor at Ted Cruz. Uh, George, in your book, I thought one of the most interesting Parts of it was about the financialization of the U.S. economy and what that has meant to the triangle of how you described it, Wall Street, Main Street, and Silicon Valley, and its implications for economic growth. Could you talk about that a little bit, please? Yep. Well, I think the ultimate scandal of money is what is used as the alternative to the gold standard. That's floating currencies. And floating currencies today, and uh, there will be a new accounting in the, this next month or so from the Bureau of International Settlements. But to, the la latest estimates are $5.3 trillion, $5 trillion a day. This is 26 times all of global GDP. It's uh, 73 times all global output of goods and services. It's a scandal. And uh, it's uh, all conducted by about 10 banks. They conduct 77% of, of this uh, currency trading. And it's 98% uh, is speculative. It can, it's just uh, a complete failure. The Chinese are accused of manipulating currencies because they refuse to float. Uh, they fixed on the dollar, thus... Uh, enabling their miracles of economic growth. And, uh, and what's happening is this, this, we've created a closed-loop economy with, uh, between uh, the Obama administration and the Fed and uh, essentially uh, startups, small businesses, Main Street has been shoved aside and 62% uh, of the Fed's money creation goes back to the Treasury. The other, uh, of the other two-thirds, most of it goes to this carnival of, of, uh, of big companies re buying up their own securities for stock market cosmetics and uh, or buying up their rivals. Uh, there's as uh, there are now twice as many IPOs in China as there are in the United States. This is a, a real catastrophe, and it's why we need a big change right now. The gentleman near the rear. 
Peter Ferrara, uh, Heartland Institute, National Tax Limitation Foundation. I would like to hear from Steve Forbes and George Gilder about what are the concrete steps, policy steps that need to be taken to restore the gold standard. If you were advising uh, President of the United States, what would you tell them that needs to be done step by step? Uh, well, the first thing is that they want to do it. And, uh, and then they, uh, the other thing is, will they know how to do it? Under the Bretton Woods standard, we didn't, which is why we ended up wrecking the system and falling for the false god that if we manipulate money, we can get easy prosperity. So uh, you start right away by freeing interest rates. Now they say, oh, that'll disrupt the markets. No, the markets are already disrupted. Just remember Peter Ludwig Erhardt in the late 1940s. He was an economic director in uh, occupied Germany. Yeah. And overnight, he proposed doing away with rationing. They said that it's a disaster. The Americans said it would be a disaster. And Ludwig Erhardt replied, my advisors tell me the same thing. It'll be a disaster. He did it anyway, freed it up, and within days, the shelves of uh, German stores started to fill up with products and food, and the German miracle began. So free interest rates at the beginning. The other thing is to announce that, uh, and, that and make it the case that that's positive for the economy because then you can get credit markets starting to work again. Second thing is uh, start winding down the Fed's bloated portfolio. Let those resources go back into the free economy. Uh, where people can determine where they should go rather than the Fed uh, determining where they should go. And then on the gold standard, you could say, by a date certain, we're going to fix it, uh, pick a price, 1100 1200 and uh, then, uh, then make it very clear that by uh, put, pulling away regulation right now with banks, you try to make a loan today, you have to justify it six ways to Sunday. Uh, we deregulated the transportation system in this country in the late 70s, begun under a Democrat. Got to do the same thing in, in, in the banking sector. And uh, one of the most wonderful things that happened, as Trump would call it, beautiful things that happened <laughs> recently, was when uh, the courts ruled in favor of MetLife. And all of those regulators who had moved into MetLife had to leave their free offices and the free meals they got, harassing MetLife in the name of saving uh, us from their uh, depredations. And uh, we, we, we need to do that with the rest of the economy, because right now when the Fed so-called creates bank reserves, it doesn't get multiplies it did under the old monetary theory. It just gets uh, uh, sterilized. So start with those and just announce a date certain, both on interest rates and on uh, going to gold. And then in terms, and then uh, the other thing they can do, Peter, is remove all the barriers to alternative currencies, tax barriers, regulatory barriers. Absolutely. So that way, if the government starts to misbehave, you can do it. And if somebody comes up with something better, you know, the government can't block it. So uh, let human ingenuity unle get unleashed there. And who knows what will happen. If I knew what would happen, I'd be on the Forbes 400 list uh, for rich people. <laughs> Anticipate it. But uh, let, uh, let, let, let the thing unleash. Remove the barriers. So the faster, the better. It's not complicated. Just do it. And uh, I think we'll be mostly pleasantly surprised by how quickly we come back to life again. It's like water in a garden. Plants grow when they have water. You're already at the top of the list with your knowledge, Steve. I'd like to make a comment on that because I think from a practical point of view, uh, uh, setting a specific price for gold uh, would not work. Uh, I disagree with Steve a little bit on this. Uh, I think it should be used as an indicator uh, as to whether we're 
too inflationary or too deflationary. The, the idea in monetary policy is to provide stability. That's your, you, you want to provide basic stability. And Milton Friedman's monetarist rule was, was with that goal in mind. The problem was, you, what, is, what is the money supply? That was his biggest problem because with deregulation, is it M1, M2, M3, M4, pretty much decided on M2. And as a matter of fact, M2 has been moving relatively stable over even throughout the financial crisis of 2008, which is, which is quite interesting. Um, but the biggest problem is, so I like to see gold as an indicator. You use it as an indicator. If it's drifting upwards, that suggests maybe too much inflation. You need to pull back. But one of the problems, Steve, with the fixed price is that then if the price falls below the price, then you should be accommodating and the Fed should be expansionary. The problem is gold is constantly overshooting one way or another. So you become expansionary and then gold goes above your market price and it shoots way above it and then you're restrictive and then you move it back down again. Hopefully you would come toward a stabilizing point of view, but the problem is the overshooting problem with gold. Uh, gold is not directly tied only to the dollar. It's also tied to other currencies. So the volatility of gold is a problem with setting a specific uh, target price, uh, which is, a move, unfortunately, a moving target. It's a moving target when you have uh, floating rates in a non-gold standard. You never had the problem under the classical gold standard. You never had the problem under Bretton Woods when they're behaving by the rules. You fix the thing, and if other currencies fluctuate, it's because they're misbehaving, which is why under the classical gold standard, when people saw how well it was working for us and for the Brits, they all adopted their own version of it, so you had very little volatility, no need for uh, Georgia's uh, currency trading. So the volatility comes from the lack of having a specificity. And in terms of, of trying to control the money supply, it's, I just think it's preposterous. It's sort of what you might call the restaurant theory of economics or coat check theory of economics. A restaurant owner notices that uh, customers check coats, which means there are more customers, so he feels if he creates more coat checks, that'll stimulate the production of more coats and therefore more, more people come to the restaurant. Now, it's backwards. Uh, money reflects people producing products and services, not the other way around. That's where Keynes was profoundly wrong. And you just look at velocity, what they call velocity of money, all over the place. Uh, so get, get, get it fixed like 60 minutes in an hour, and the hour won't fluctuate anymore. It's now the viscosity of money. This was, this was uh, uh, Friedman's big, big error. I mean, he did believe that uh, velocity was essentially a constant. And, and monetarism only works on the assumption that velocity, turnover of the money, can be predicted. But uh, turnover is controlled by us, by all those go people uh, producing general output. And, uh, and that can't be controlled by the Fed. By the way, in terms of uh, Mark's thing, uh, an even better thing is a gross domestic expenditure. Uh, you should read his paper on it, which uh, gets some of the flaws of the GO standard. You uh, talk about GDE, mm -hmm. which is even better than GO in terms of uh, measuring. Yeah, I've got what happens uh, in, the in my new introduction to the structure, I go into uh, how to take advantage of that. Yeah.
Sir, gentleman in the front row. Uh, Austin Middleton from George Mason University Economics Department. Uh, my question is, uh, Gerald O'Driscoll here at Cato has uh, no fan of uh, centralized uh, monetary authorities. Him opines that even if you set strict constraints upon the monetary authority, you can have serious problems when the fiscal authority is relatively unconstrained. And that this is, uh, he, he lays the problems of the European Central Bank down to precisely this issue. So given that you impose the constraints of a gold standard upon the monetary authority, I suggest that you are curing a symptom and not the underlying problem, which is fiscal profligacy. Well, that uh, Europe's problems are structural, fiscal and uh, regulatory. And uh, the idea that uh, manipulating money, uh, like manipulating the number of minutes in an hour, hmm. is going to uh, cure those structural problems is, uh, is preposterous. They can't. Uh, Illinois, if you take the word Greece and translate it into English, you get Illinois. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, and, uh, but no one suggests seriously that if Illinois left the dollar zone that uh, its problems would be cured. Uh, let's have an Illinois peso. No, that would compound it. So Driscoll's uh, right. Those are structural problems. Nothing to do with, uh, well, the euro has been mismanaged, but the euro in and of itself uh, is not the problem. Uh, but trying to use the euro to overcome these structural problems, not to mention the idiot tax increases they put in in Greece and elsewhere, is the real problem, uh, just as in this country. So uh, having, having a, a stable measure of money, uh, is you, having an unstable measure of money is not going to overcome the uh, problems you have of uh, hyper-regulation, over-taxation, and the, all the anti-growth. You know, they talk about Obama's, uh, Obama talks about Republicans' war on women. How about President Obama's war on prosperity? Uh, which is uh, the, the real problem. So having a steady measure of something, making it unsteady, is not going to cure those very real structural problems that uh, Driscoll and others refer to. And I would, I would add also that uh, Jesus Huerta de Soto in Spain has made a very good point about this, that the euro is acting like a gold standard. And so it is, it is causing Greece and other countries who are... Uh, fiscally irresponsible to suffer as a result of this and get their act together. That's what the gold standard does when you uh, over, over uh, use your debt and uh, tax system and, and uh, the euro is, is the gold standard. And uh, so a lot of economists, by the way, argue that one of the reasons that we uh, the, uh, they, they note that the countries that went off the gold standard first during the Great Depression uh, recovered more quickly. It's an interesting argument that uh, is, is worth looking at. And I think that's what Greece is thinking of, thinking, oh, we can go off the euro and therefore we can recover more quickly. That's the, that's the basis of that argument. By, by the way, on uh, uh, thinking that unsteady money works, uh, just ask Brazil how well that works, Argentina how well that has worked, Zimbabwe how well that has worked. Uh, countries that have uh, steady currencies do better over time than those that uh, don't have steady currencies. Not to get in a discussion of the Depression, 
But uh, those who uh, cheapen their money, all that did was uh, get a beggar thy neighbor policy going where uh, they all went off, all debauched their currencies. And uh, the 30s overall was a miserable decade. Uh, you can cheat, get a, little, get a little leap forward, then others follow, and uh, you're back to where you were. It's a, it's a mistake anyway to think that the key function of money is to register something called inflation or deflation. It's to give signals of information. And uh, in Europe, uh, the euro isn't gold. The euro is a manipulated currency dominated by a socialist regime. And so it falsifies the information that guides entrepreneurial creativity. And that's why it doesn't work. It's not because of uh, that it will misjudge collective level of prices, which is almost impossible to compute, compute anyway. All you have to do is look at the price of oil, nominal price of oil in the 70s when we went off the rails and went from $3 to almost $40 a barrel. Because the price, nominal price was going up, people thought we were running out of this stuff. You had huge investments in alternatives. You had huge investments in the energy industry. The early 80s, the terrible inflation's conquered. Oil crashes down to $10 a barrel. Texas goes into a depression. The agricultural economy goes into a depression. Unstable money, and we saw the same thing in the last decade, uh, unstable money is like a virus in a computer. It corrupts the information, George's point. I think we're going to leave it there um, because I usually eat lunch at noon. So right now my stomach feels like I'm living on the 75-minute hour that Steve referenced earlier. Um, but I want to say that you know, one of the things that Steve um, started out with in his remarks, you know, we kind of reject this idea that we've somehow got to get used to uh, a reduced uh, level of growth, a reduced level of prosperity, because uh, the fact that we're living through this uh, difficult time really is is a result of uh, serious policy errors that are all related to uh, a reduced level of freedom. Um, so obviously something that uh, we be, believe very strongly here at Cato. I want to thank you all for being here. I want to uh, especially thank those of you in the audience who are sponsors of Cato, it's your generosity that makes our work possible. And especially want to thank uh, the three presenters today, all of whom have books available outside for, uh, for purchase, and I'd encourage you to do so. But gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.